Hey, again, uh, we are a family, and as a family, we care for each other, and we recognize stages in life. One of the things I want to share, I know uh, many of you know Eleanor that passed away, and there is a service today at 4 o'clock. Uh, you can find someone that uh, has been around for a while that will let you know about that. I think it's over at the Life Care Center. Elk Run. And so if you want to be a part of that, 4 o'clock today, if you know Eleanor. And then also, as we recognize those that grieve, we also celebrate uh, the new life that God has given us. You know, one of the things we do at Bergen Park Church is we dedicate children. We see baptism as a step that you take after following Jesus and desiring to follow Jesus. We're baptized as an admission that we want Jesus Christ to be our Savior and Lord and to be known in this community as those that represent his love and grace in the world. Now, dedication is a long history, both in the Old Testament, New Testament, and then today into the church. If you know your Old Testament well, uh, in the book of Samuel, Hannah comes to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and she presents her son, uh, Samuel, to the Lord, and dedicating him uh, to serve their Lord. And then also, you remember in the New Testament, around Christmas celebration, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus, as was the custom to dedicate and consecrate him to the Lord. And so today, likewise, in the church, we uh, bring the children of believing parents and covenant really commit together to raising these children within the body of Jesus Christ and encouraging those parents to follow after Jesus as we encourage and support them. And so today I have the privilege to invite Jonathan and Aaron and their boys, Daniel and Marshall, to come forward along with the rest of the family. Guys, I didn't know you're coming up too. Come on up. Come on up, buddy. And to dedicate their boys to the Lord. Hey, buddy, how are you? Hi, do you see the people? Again, this is an opportunity for us, and not just for this family to present their children to God and to say, Lord, we want them to come to faith at an early age, but also for us to take ownership. What's going on back there, guys? to take ownership, to invest into their lives. And so I want to read a passage out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Guys, after I read that passage, uh, I'm going to ask you three questions. And after each question, will you respond by saying we do? You ready? Here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 says this. These are the commands, decrees, and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you to teach to you, to your children, your grandchildren, that we must fear the Lord our God as long as we live. As scripture says, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you to today. Repeat them again and again, as you talk to your children, as you talk to them as you're at home and on the road, when you're going to bed at night and getting up again in the morning, may these words always be upon your heart. And so in response to God's word, I'm going to ask you three questions. And here's the first. Do you acknowledge that your sons are God's gift to you? And do you confess your need of help and grace from God? and shaping them in the nurture and in the teaching of the Lord. All right. And do you covenant to instruct them in his teaching and the teachings of Jesus Christ 
and to model for them in your life what it means to follow Jesus. All right. Hey, buddy. And you covenant to raise him through the local body of Christ, asking this day God's blessing on them to guide, guard, and direct them all their days. All right. Hey, Daniel, can I try to hold you? <gasps> hey, buddy. Church, this is Daniel Ransom Coors. Hey, Daniel. <laughs> this is the church. We also want to introduce to you Marshall Clayton Coors. Hey, Marshall. Say hi to the church. Hey, we have two. <laughs> Good job. Two verses. The first comes from Matthew. Actually, is that... That's, yeah, I should say Joshua 1, 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong? That's going to be challenging. <laughs> and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And here's the second for Marshall. Actually for Daniel. Sorry, buddy. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God the Father who is in heaven. Hey, let me pray for these boys. Father, I thank you for this family. I thank you, Father, that uh, Aaron and Jonathan, I know you perfectly well, love you, Father, and they've come to know you and to believe in you, and they seek to raise their family in a way that will reflect the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so as a body of Christ and as a community, help us, Lord, to love them well so that others in our community may know the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. We entrust them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You did an awesome job, buddy. And also, church as well, you don't have to stand up for this, but I want to also encourage you as, as a community, we covenant with each other, meaning that God is committed never to leave us or forsake us, and we express that by caring for one another. And so here's a question that I want to ask you as the body of Christ. And so do you, the local body of Christ, promise to support this family with your prayers and love as they seek to follow Christ? Do you commit yourselves to the ministry of the church? to reflect the truth of God's word so that this family may be nurtured and strengthened in our common bond of faith. If you do, please respond by saying, we do. All right, we did it. Hey guys, it is a joy to share life together and to watch your boys grow up and follow Christ. It's good to see you. Hey, we have a gift for you. One of these young ladies is gonna bring in that bag. There's a couple of gifts. Also, there's a letter that's written both to Marshall and to Daniel that will explain to them what we did today, if you can, if you're able to get them off. Yeah. Yeah. Good job, guys. Hey, thank you. See you, buddy. Hey, in front of you, maybe uh, near the, your feet, I was about to say, there should be a Bible if you don't have one. Uh, you can take that Bible with you. You can also turn on your Bibles if that's how you roll. We're going to be in Psalm 103.
We've been talking about the Psalms of the summer in this whole summer series. We've been talking about what it would look like if God's Word became the songs that really resonated with our life and hearts. We all have that song that captures a moment in life, maybe in our youth or uh, during different seasons of life. And when that song hits the radio, it's like you're transported back to a certain age or to certain sounds and smells and sights. And so likewise, we want these words to become as sweet and as real to us as those songs in the past. And so today, with Stephen, we're going to begin in Psalm 103 by both singing and then also reading God's word. So let's, let's experience this together. Psalm 103. satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord, he shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, and he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And so, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obey the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works. In all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. Get down, I love his benefits. 
Father, I'd ask through the power of the Spirit that the word that you've given us would be like a, a sword that is sharp and yet it cuts only where it's necessary. It doesn't, it's not wielded to destroy or to cut down, but rather to restore, to heal, to build up. And so, Father, in, in Jesus' name, would your word become active in our hearts? And Lord, would our soul sense that there's something we need to bless, uh, a reality, a truth that needs to be more captivated in our hearts that's not, it's so real in my, our minds, Lord, would your truth become alive to the heart, opening the eyes to see, the ears to hear the truth of what, Lord Jesus, you've done. Father, it's good to be in your presence. Teach us now, Father, as we, as we seek to examine your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 103. He snuck away. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Then he says, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. You know, what's unique about Psalm 103 is he's not really talking to God. If you notice in verse 1, though this is a prayer in a sense, it's not a prayer directed to God himself, and it's not something that David is necessarily saying to us. He's not just simply trying to teach us. You notice in verse 1 who he's speaking to. He's addressing his own soul. He's taking, in a sense, his heart into his hands, and he's taking the truth of who God is and what God has done, and he's arguing with his own soul. He's pressing truth into the heart to such a degree that, in a way, his heart is beginning to melt, and what is coming out is this intimacy of praise, which we call blessed. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. See, to bless is not simply to praise. Because he could say, hey, praise the Lord. Let's shout. Let's give thanksgiving. But see, blessing is a unique concept when it comes from us to God. Because I think typically, if you know anything about the Bible, and maybe that's new to you, but God is typically the one that blesses us. You know, in Genesis, it said that God created us, and then he blessed us. Now, what's so amazing about that is that's before the fall, before sin came into the world, meaning that you and I are created to be blessed, and we'll either be blessed by God, or we'll listen to some other voice define our identity and affirmation, that typically we think a blessing is coming from God. But what David is saying is that God has so unified his heart to ours that he, he receives joy when our hearts overflow in blessing to him. You see, what is blessing? When David says in verse one, what does it mean to bless the Lord, O my soul? It means to give God joy by really taking joy in God. I don't know if that hits you, but it does for me as I was thinking about it this week, that God has so connected his heart to ours that he receives joy when I find my joy in him, when I enjoy him, he receives enjoyment from my praise. I, I think really, if you think about it, that's the heart of every healthy relationship. That the focus of every relationship is not just what we get from someone, but the fact that we enjoy them for who they are. 
Have you been in that kind of relationship? I think all of us know what it's like. I imagine if you've lived in the world for any period of time, what it's like to be taken advantage of. To, to realize that though someone seems like they care for you, instead of caring for you, they just want to use you. They want to get something from you, and you're not in their life because they really value you for you. They're not seeking to bring you joy. They want to get joy from what you can give to them. But see, what David is saying is, God, I enjoy you simply because of who you are. And what and who God is is always going to show up as we walk into this passage and what God has done. The way we discover who God is is really by looking at what God has done. And so the rest of this passage, as you look in verse 2, he says, forget not his benefits. See, how do we bless the Lord? What does that look like? Today, I want to ask some questions. The first one is, what does it look like to bless the Lord? Then second, how do we do that? And then finally, what is the motivation that drives that kind of life that really finds our joy in God? What does it mean to bless the Lord? What does that look like? How do we do it? And then what's the, what's the engine? What's the motivation that enables us to do it? You guys ready? Yes. All right, let's, let's jump in this together. You're with me. You're just excited. And so let's jump in. So again, notice in, in verse two, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. Two ideas that I think we need to pull out. First of all, he says in verse 1 that it has to start with our inmost being. That when we're talking about praise and blessing of God, it can't be an intellectual exercise. I know we have a lot of intellectuals in here, a lot of engineer types, maybe detail-oriented strategic planners, people that know how to line things up and see them right. But it's not just the details, hopefully, that gets you excited. It's what the details will accomplish when all things come together. That it's not enough just to be inspired in the mind and to see the details. It's got to begin to inspire a vision in the heart. That's what David is saying. It's not enough to praise God and simply to go through a list and say, hey, God's loving. He's gracious. He's merciful. I know all the right truth. You know, I could do the true-false questions. I could answer the spiritual inventories. That's not enough. Rather, what he's saying is this truth has to somehow give birth to joy in the heart. You see that? It's not enough just to simply praise God with the mind and say, okay, I know I exist, I know God exists, and I know something about his love, but instead he's saying there's a point at which the truth of who God is and what he's done has to begin to melt the heart, to melt the soul, so that what comes out is praise to God. Now, how do you do that? Well, see, in verse 2, and certainly in Hebrew poetry, often one verse will be explained by the other. So if you're wondering what it means to bless the Lord, O my soul, if you look in verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, what does that mean? It means forget not all his benefits. How do we bless the Lord? The way we bless the Lord and the way that passion begins to turn into a fire into the heart is you've got to remember what God's done. You've got to remember the ways that he's loved us, sacrificed for us. And basically, what David is doing in this psalm is he's going through after verse 2, and he's just going down a whole list for 22 verses and just saying, this is what God's done. This is his generosity to us. This is how he's forgiven us. He's redeemed my life from the pit, and the Lord's love is from everlasting to everlasting. Even though he knows that we're just but dust, 
that we're here for a little while and then we vanish and yet God has placed such value on us that he has set his steadfast love, his covenantal love in our lives so that we may know that we matter to him. What he does is he lists all these benefits and what you'll see if you look in verses one through five is he's talking about the grace of God, that God has forgiven us, he's redeemed us, that one day he's gonna rescue our life from the pit, he has given us a crown over our heads. And then from verses six to 14, you see God's justice and mercy, that though God is just, he is also merciful to us. He doesn't give us what we deserve but rather he brings justice to the cross. And then finally, when you look down in uh, verses 15 and 18, you see the eternal love of God. And finally, as it ends in verses 19 through 22, it says all of creation, all of life will praise him. But see, the anchor for this entire passage is really found in verse two, and that's where I'd love to camp for just a little bit. Forget not all his benefits. Now, the forget not simply means to remember. In some ways, it's a kind of double negative. It's saying, do not forget. Instead, what we need to do is to remember. But to remember, again, can't just be mental assent. It can't simply be uh, understanding all the facts and making sure the facts are straight or understanding the details. Instead, it's to take that truth in such a way and take the heart so that the truth begins to inspire the heart to worship and to praise God. That we have to live out of a story, a story not just of what we have done or what we can do, but rather I think what David's describing is a story of who God is and what he's done. And instead of living out of my life and just me as an individual experiencing life, David is saying, God, may the story, may the operating system of my heart be your story. May I be more caught up in who you are than who I am more caught up in what you've done than what I need to do. Now, what does that look like? Before we jump back into the text, I think there's a story that helps me to grasp what that looks like practically. It's from a movie, now it's been a little while, as I say it, uh, Saving Private Ryan. You may remember, if you don't know the story, it takes place during World War II, and Ryan is a soldier, and he's off in the fields, but he doesn't know that his brothers, and I think there's potentially four, all his brothers have died and he is the last remaining son. And so a group of men, they go out and their mission is just to get Private Ryan back home. But along the way, most of those men give up their life so that he could be brought back to his family. And if you remember that poignant moment at the end of that movie in Private Ryan, he's no longer an 18-year-old kid. He's a much more mature older man. Behind him is his son, his daughters, his granddaughters, and he turns to his wife and he remembers. He's not just mentally recalling facts that someone died. Rather, he says to his wife, if you remember those words, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've been a good husband. Now, why would he say that? It wasn't just simply that he remembered that someone died. No, see, his entire life was lived out of the sacrifice of what these these men had given him. And whether he was going to the store just simply to get a gallon of milk or taking his son to his first day of school or whether he's standing there in France looking at the grave of someone who gave everything for him, his life was lived out of the story of their sacrifice. See, that's the kind of remembrance 
that David is describing. He's not saying that God has to be just an intellectual idea, a figment, some kind of concept out there, but rather the truth of who God is is a story. And it has to become alive to the heart. Now, why do I call it a story? Because what David is describing is what the New Testament calls the gospel. And see, what's the gospel? It's the good news. It's the story of who God is. And it's the story of what God has done. And throughout the Bible, I don't know if you've noticed this, God's constantly telling us, remember. You know, don't forget. Remember, recall. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll find there's a lot of festivals that are simply ceremonies, celebrations like the Passover, in which the Jews would get together and they'd rehash, they'd replay and reread stories of what God has done in the past. Even though it's a thousand years later, God is saying to them, remember what I've done. Because see, in remembering what I've done, you're going to capture who I am. And then for us today, we have the celebration of communion. That communion is not just a ceremony that we celebrate at the end of the service, the beginning of the service. Rather, it's an experience in which we gather together holding the bread and holding that cup and recognizing that the life that I have is a life that's given to me because of what Jesus Christ has done. God's calling us to remember. And if you want to turn there in 2 Peter chapter 1, there's a passage that I think shows us the power of remembrance. And the way that remembrance is not just something we do intellectually, but rather when it captures the heart, when the heart is overwhelmed by what God is and uh, who God is and what God's done, it actually begins to change the life. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, let me just share what Peter's doing. In verses 8 through 11, what he begins to do is describe a list of virtues, much like the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Then essentially he's going to say, why do you lack these things? And so let me ask you before we read the text, why do you lack self-control? You don't have to respond. (laughs) Some of you want to. Why do you lack kindness? Why do you lack love? You know, if I, if I had to sit down and say, okay, I need to get my life in line. I need to get some self-control. I'd probably sit down and start looking at some habits. Maybe I'd pick up a good self-help book. Start looking at some procedures and processes, maybe some accountability. When I think of changing my life and the virtues of my life, I think of all the things that I need to do. Well, with that in mind, go look at verse 9 and notice What Peter says is the reason why we don't have love and self-control and faithfulness in our lives. He says in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What changes us? It's not the effort of the will. What changes us is the worship of the heart. What changes us is what we remember. What changes us is the story that we live out of. He's saying, if you know that you've been forgiven, then what you realize is that God accepts you not based on your performance. And yet I think many of us just want to perform. I think we live in a world that says perform. You know, dance and dance for me now. And dance for me well. Perform. And when we get into the Christian life, we forget that the reason we're Christians is not because we performed well. We're Christians because Jesus performed well. 
And the way to salvation is by trusting in what Jesus Christ has done. But here's the beauty of that. The way of growth is also by trusting in what Jesus Christ has done. That we grow by faith to faith. And he's saying the reason you're not producing the fruit of the Spirit is your mind is focused on all the things you need to do rather than being captivated by what God has done. When you fail, when you're caught in addiction and maybe you've walked through a season like that and maybe that's your season today, what's going to break that cycle of addiction? What's going to enable you to change life and have a new kind of character? It's not, it's not the will. It's the heart. It's taking the truth of what Christ has done and recognizing, you know, even in my messed up life, I'm accepted by God. Even as I am bitter and angry, God does not push himself away from me. Rather, God is patient with me. He is long-suffering with me, and he constantly reminds me that I'm not accepted because I got it right. I'm accepted because Jesus got it right, and he is my foundation. And when you begin to remember that, what happens is it starts to stir the soul. And you find that God is beautiful, and your heart begins to desire him. You know, in the book of Deuteronomy, God is always saying, remember, remember, don't forget. Because as the Israelites went through the wilderness, that wasn't good days. It's not good to be without. It's not good to be in a place of hardship where you don't know what's going to come the next day. But he said, guys, a day's coming, and things are going to get good. And that could be your own story. Uh, many of us, we started out in life with nothing. Life was hard. It was difficult. We struggled. Maybe a broken marriage, failed business, failed opportunities. And in those moments, I imagine, trust, much like the Israelites, you know, you're, you're trusting in God in those days because you know that you need him. But then what happens? You cross the Jordan, and now you're in the promised land. Things are good. You've got a little bit more. You've got a better house, a better income. Things start to look good. And so what God says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 is this. He says, when you come to the promised land, beware. Lest you say in your heart, my power and my might and my hand have gotten me this wealth. What happens? See, what he's saying is the heart doesn't want to remember God. See, one of our challenges and the reason that this psalm is written is we don't want to remember God. We don't want to submit ourselves. Are you with me? We don't want to say, hey, God, I owe you everything. Everything I have is yours. Now, there's moments of worship where we commit to that vision. We understand that. But what happens? You get out of the parking lot. I mean, how far does it last? I'm not that great a communicator. By the time you're King Supers, that love, that grace of Jesus is now turned into anger. Somebody's taken the last gallon of ice cream. I cannot believe it. What suffering? What hardship? You see someone, you know, you see a neighbor, that guy, and this bitterness kind of comes in. What's happening? How quickly do we forget? Why do we have such a tendency to hold on to all the negative things, but the good things, the things that we call gospel, good news, they slip right through our mind? I think what he's saying in Deuteronomy and what we're going to see in Romans is that we don't want to remember. There's a sense in us that we don't want to obey. We don't want to submit. That rebellious spirit says, I'm God. I'm not going to humble myself before anyone. 
David, recognizing that in his own self, says, guys, every day we've got to get up and remind ourselves of what God has done. You know what the Bible's about? It's about reminding you of what God has done. The purpose of the Bible is not just to instruct your morality. It's to instruct your worship, to remind you of what God has done. And that's why when you read something that says forgive, it's always connected to as you've been forgiven. Now, let me ask you, which side do you tend to focus on? The forgive? Or do you remember that you've been forgiven? Or how about love? Husbands, we know this one. Love your wives. Is that where we sit? Just in the command? I've got to love my wife today. We're in an argument. Just need to love some more. Find me a little bit of love. I don't know where you keep that. Instead, he says, as Christ loved the church. Let me ask you, are you remembering or are you just trying to love? See, all throughout Scripture, what it's doing is reminding you of what God has done. And when what God has done begins to permeate the heart, then the life begins to follow. We begin to bless the Lord, O oh my soul. See, Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it captures it this way. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness, unrighteousness of men. And notice, who suppress who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We have to remember because I think we have a heart that longs to hold on to what is broken and to reject what is good. Let me think about that. You think of your own family. How often do we do things that just make no sense? I love my wife. I love my kids. And yet what comes out of our mouth? Words that kill, words that crush and destroy. We hide our own behaviors. I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but I know there's individuals right now, there's things you don't want the person sitting next to you to know. And yet, there's no commitment really in your life to let it go. And yet, you say you love that person. I love that sacrifice. I love what he or she has given. And yet, there is this in the heart a desire to suppress what is good and to hold on to what is broken. What's the solution? In your mess, you've got to look at what God's done. I don't know about you, but in your brokenness, in those moments of anger and bitterness and rage, and when those words come out and they're flying, and you know that desire in you is to kill, you have to look at the face of God and know that you deserved punishment, and yet he gave you grace. You deserve to be rejected, and yet he gave you forgiveness. You deserve to be an orphan, and yet he made you his child. The only thing that is going to transform the life is a soul that is satisfied in what God has done. So what do we need to remember? Just quickly, in verses 1 through 5, really what you see in verses 1 through 5 is a picture of the gospel, the way that we know it. Jesus Christ came as the Son of God. He lived. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again, and right now he's interceding for us. And he is our hope that will one day come and restore all things. Notice in verse 3, the first thing he says we need to remember. He says, remember who forgives all your iniquities. What he's addressing is guilt. He's addressing shame. So many of us associate what we, what we do with who we are. I am what I do or I am what I have. Maybe I'm prideful because I look at what I have and I say, hey, look at what my hands have made. Or I look at what I do and maybe I fail and so I have a, a negative self-image because I, 
as the world tells me and what I do. Scripture is saying, no, you are what Christ has done. He covers your iniquity. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. Instead, you're fully known. Imagine that. Even in your brokenness, even though your wife doesn't know what you're thinking and the struggles that you have, God does, and yet he's still setting his love upon you in the same measure and to the same degree with the same passion that he sent Jesus Christ. He forgives our iniquities. But then notice the second thing in verse 3 is that he heals our diseases. Now, again, in Hebrew poetry, the first line and the second line are always interrelated, connected. So he's not just talking about the body. I think when he's referring to diseases, what he's saying is when your heart is right with God and he's forgiven you and the vertical is lined up, the horizontal begins to find healing. That when you get your heart right with God, husbands, you can begin to become a little less prideful and admit your brokenness and the areas you need to improve. Now, why is that? Because if God, who knows everything, accepts you completely, you don't need to worry about the opinion of your wife in the sense of what she says is who you are. Rather, you can be honest and acknowledge, this is where I struggle, and say with Paul, hey, may God's power be perfected in my weakness so that in all things God may be praised. What is he saying? He heals our diseases, that when we get our heart right with God and we know we're accepted, we can start addressing what's going on in the relationships even in this room. We can start loving people who disagree with us. We can start caring for people who want nothing to do with us. Where does that power come from? From recognizing that's what God's done for me. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. If Jesus was willing to make me, treat me like family before I was, then why can't I treat others around me like family before they are. What is he doing? He's saying, remember the gospel. Remember you've been forgiven. And then he says in verse four, he redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He's referring to the resurrection, that life is not all that there is, but rather, though we are but dust, and so as you read through the rest of this passage, and I hope you'll take time, he's saying that though we are but dust and though we pass away, we have been crowned with an identity and with love that is steadfast. It's covenantal. God doesn't give up on us just because we fail, and he crowns us with that kind of dignity and respect. But what happens in life is we forget. And when you forget, you walk in shame, you think the solution is it's up to me. I just got to get up earlier tomorrow and start getting in the word. I got to try harder. I got to do more. I got to change my life. It's up to me and the power to change is really in me. And then finally, you start crowning yourself, sometimes with pride. Hey, I'm the kind of Christian that does it right. Or you may crown yourself with shame. I don't want to let anybody know what's really going on in my life. But see, when the gospel is central and you know you're forgiven, you know the power to change comes from God and you know your dignity and your identity isn't something that being taken away. Rather, it was given to you through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. You're secure. And you can walk in life not with pride but with a humble courage, recognizing that what God's done to me, he wants to do through me. See, everything that David is doing is he's just reminding us but where does the motivation come from as I close? I want to close with this, this picture, this illustration. You know, what's the just penalty for forgetting God? 
What would be right, equitable? If we have forgotten God, therefore God should have forgotten us. I think the worst experience in life is to be forgotten, not to be hated. At least when you're hated, someone's paying attention. When you get criticism or bad book review, a deal doesn't go well, they don't like you, at least someone's paying attention. They know you exist, and your existence may, may, may bring uh, bad feelings to their heart, and yet you're not ignored. The worst thing to be is to suffer, and yet nobody knows. To live, and yet nobody pays attention. You know what hell is? It's simply being ignored by God. It's God not knowing, not, not that he doesn't know we're there, but his heart is not set on us. That's not something we know today, even as an unbeliever for God's grace and his mercy, he knows us. And yet when we respond to him in faith, we come into that personal knowledge. And so if the just penalty for forgetting God is being forgotten, what happened on the cross? Think about the words that Jesus said when he was on the cross. My God, my God, you could translate, why have you forgotten? Why have you forsaken me? See, we who have forgotten God, Jesus was forgotten so that we could remember and continue to remember. And it's only when we recognize that Jesus was forgotten. It's only by faith when we look and say, you know, in my sin right now, my arrogance, my pride, what I want to look at is that Christ was forgotten so that by faith, I can say, Lord, I can remember you. Even though I've messed up, I can trust you today because you will not reject me. Instead, your steadfast love will hold on to me. What causes the soul to explode in blessing for God is when the heart is melted by the truth of God. And I'll tell you, as a community and as a pastor, I need you to remind me daily. I was talking to a brother this week, and we are just, even though in professional ministry, talking about how easily we forget God. And I'm paid to remember. That's a joke. <laughs> but when we do, what God brings forth is more beautiful, more surprising. And it causes the people in this community to say, God is here. God is at work. And let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that the only reason we know this isn't because we're smart. Because the gospel is foolishness. When we heard it, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense that you, Lord Jesus, though you're in very nature God, would become human and take our place. And that you would be patient with us. Not giving us what we deserve, as, as David says, but looking upon us with compassion and mercy and doing that knowing that the debt is paid. And so, Father, help us to walk in that truth, to trust and to know that if we're the children of God, you're a better father than we are. You're a better parent than we are. We would not cast off our child, but we constantly chase after and want their best. And Lord, you likewise remind us this is what I've done for you. This is who you are. Now, may that captivate the heart so that we may live in a way that others would say, I want that Father. I want that God. And I want to be a part of a community that's more concerned with the needs of others than just crowning ourselves with the honor of man. Or guide us into that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.